Good morning. One thing we're doing, um, we've been focusing on commitments as a general pattern. We'll be talking about that a little bit in the, in the message. But one thing we've been doing specifically is we've been uh, focusing on one of the 10 commitments a week at a time and asking different individuals, actually volunteering individuals, to come up and to be able to, um, to say something. Pat, come on up. Pat's going to come up and she's going to talk about the 10th commitment. God gives me the power to be content. Okay. Uh, good morning. I'm Pat Jaycott. Um, my husband Dave and I are one of the original families um, uh, that was with Mike back in 1994. Uh, I remember taking Gavin to the movie E.T. <laughs> when he was a toddler, uh, and now he's probably... He's in his 30s now. I'm glad I haven't gotten any older. <laughs> uh, commitment number 10. God gives me the power to be content. Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. That's Philippians 4, 12 and 13. I looked up the biblical meaning of contentment, and here's one way it's defined. The state of, mental, of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with things as they are. I like that definition because I think Paul, in particular, emphasized the renewing of the mind. I also read... Contentment grows in proportion to trust. The more you trust God, the more content you become. It goes on to state discontentment will result in a pattern of turning from God, lying, and hiding sin. It seems to me that if contentment is a door, then trust is the key to unlock that door. Sometimes to understand what something is, for me, I need to first understand what it is not. So I googled the opposite of contentment, and I was surprised to find there's over a thousand references. It struck me that we may not be familiar with what contentment is, but we sure know what it is not. Words that we're all too acquainted with, such as fear, anxiety, misery, trouble, worry, upset, anger. I'm not sharing with you today because I'm a content person. In fact, when I told my granddaughter I was going to share on content, she started laughing. <laughs> don't know what that was all about. <laughs> Actually, I don't think contentment is even natural. If it was natural, would God need to give us the power to be content? Think about that. But I have experienced contentment, both personally and what I would call from a distance. In the book, The Hiding Place, 
Corey Ten Boom tells her Papa Ten Boom he can't die because she couldn't live without him. Her Papa replied that God prepares us for things just before we go through them, just as her Papa only gives her a ticket right before she boards a train. I think God also gives us the power to be content when we need it. One of my personal experiences, and I've had a few of them, with contentment was when my dad passed away uh, after a, bu a brief illness a few years ago. I remember dreading going to the funeral. I was experiencing a lot of discontentment. Things had happened so fast, and I certainly wasn't ready to go to my dad's funeral. I needed time to process, but of course, there was no time to process. It was a Catholic ceremony, and during the course of the service, our then three-year-old twin granddaughters became restless. So their dad, Mark, took them outside, and as the ceremony wrapped up and the funeral procession exited the church with the family following the casket, my husband Dave and I caught up to Julie, the twins' mom, and we walked out of the church together arm in arm, holding each other up. I literally felt like I couldn't go any further. But when we reached the exterior doorway of that old church and were greeted with the bright warmth of the August day, the silence was broken by a sweet little granddaughter's voice squealing, There's mommy! And in that moment, I experienced contentment. I remember thinking to myself, Yep, that's life. We say goodbye to one generation, and we say hello to a new generation. Life goes on. God gives me the power to be content. My experience of contentment from a distance, I witnessed more recently, and this being Mother's Day, I think it's fitting to share. I was texting a relative of mine, a mother of three grown sons who, in the past two years, has buried two of her sons. The most recent being Terry, her middle child, who died of COVID in April. I was expressing to her how helpless I felt, and she wrote back, and I quote, your thoughts and prayers were appreciated. It is a sad time for me, but as they say, life goes on. Terry was a wonderful person, and I was happy to be his mom. End of quote. Is she sad? Yes. Is she heartbroken? I'm sure. Losing two children in two years, shouldn't she be angry? But her comments are that of gratefulness and trust. As she said, life goes on. The power to be content in any and every situation. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Thank you.
Thanks, Pat. We're in the middle of a series we're thinking about words lost in translation. The Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. And when you translate words from one language into another, from Hebrew to English or from Greek to English, what ends up happening is um, shades of meaning are lost. And we're trying to discover meanings that have been lost in translation out of all the words. This has the potential to be the most significant. It's challenging to try to figure out, as we'll look at, glory. That's glory. It's a religious word. And what we're going to do, we're going to talk about that, make some statements about it. And, and as we do so, it, sometimes these kind of things feel a little bit technical. Of all the things that I've learned, understanding glory and kind of the difference between old covenant glory and new covenant glory is the single most important thing I've ever learned and has the ability. And it's, it, does, it doesn't change us right away, but as our thinking about what glory is kind of aligns with some of the things we'll look at, it starts to change the way we think about God. And changing the way we think about God over time changes the way we relate to him, changes our view of him, and it ends up changing our behaviors. What ends up happening in church oftentimes is we focus so much on behavior, but we really don't look at belief. And biblically, in order to change behaviors, beliefs need to change, and that's what we'll find when we look at glory. Uh, glory actually... Interestingly, there are, the Hebrew word for glory is kabod. That's Hebrew. The Greek word translated glory is doxa. And so we'll read in an English version, we'll read in the old and the new, we'll come to glory. And when it's in the Old Testament, that word, the Hebrew word, is kabod. And the same word, doxa, in the New Testament, both translated the same glory. But those words have different images. The Hebrew word translated glory, kabot, and the Greek word translated glory, doxa, have different shades of meaning in the original language. Uh, kabot is the Hebrew word for glory. And the basic idea of the word has to do with weight, with weight, something heavy. When applied to objects, it refers to an object that is heavy, and weighty. When applied to body parts, it refers to something that feels heavy and unresponsive. I remember following grads, graduating from college, I went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, and one of the places that I ended up serving was in Minnesota, at the University of Minnesota. I remember Phil Luther. He was another staff guy there, and he tells a story about um, falling asleep on his arms. And so he was, he was kind of sleeping, and he fell asleep on his arms, and, and he woke up to the alarm blaring, and his arms were completely asleep. You ever, you ever experienced that? That's the sense when it ref, 
when it applies to body parts, it's when things... So, so he, here he is. He has to try to figure out how to turn the alarm off because he lives with a lot of other people, but he can't move his arms. So he was telling the story. I'll never forget it. So what he had to do, he had to stand up and he kind of had to, he had to kind of swing his arm. And so he, he, he swung his arm and, and then he, he knocked the, the, the alarm clock on the floor. And then he had to get off, and, and he had to kind of try to do this, and he finally got it turned off. That's when kabod refers to body parts. It's body parts that are heavy and unresponsive. When applied to people, kabod refers to someone honored. And in that time, someone who was honored was oftentimes laden with possessions. They had a lot of stuff. That's the Hebrew word. The Greek word for translated glory is doxa. And that comes from the word to think. I want you to imagine that uh, and it's, it's the, the estimation or the valuation of someone. Um, perhaps there were some moms, maybe you, maybe some moms here this morning. Um, you might maybe make breakfast in bed, unless you've experienced that before, and you said, please, on Mother's Day, don't make me breakfast in bed. So that might have happened. But anyway, some of you might have cultivated breakfast in bed. And whether it was good or not, I imagine that you see your little one, or you can remember the little one coming in, and you know what would have happened? A smile on your face. Your eyes light up. That's the sense of doxa. It's opinion or valuation. It's when somebody that you enjoy comes in and your face lights up. That's the image for doxa. It's opinion. If we think of the heaviness of kabod, we might think of that as evaluation. You know how heavy evaluation can feel when you're being assessed and maybe criticized. Greek doxa, the sense is valuation, not evaluation, valuation. Um, let's apply this word, and we're going to make three statements. And, and we're going to try to figure out, okay, how does this apply to God, and what does this tell us about God? How does it change our view about him? Uh, glory, number one, glory reflects God's covenant. Um, when we think about glory, sometimes we think of glory is the image in the Bible of glory is light. You know, so light comes from God, and we think of God's glory kind of radiating out into the universe, and it kind of emanates from him. And, but really, glory is, it's, it's not simply about what God is like. When the Bible talks about glory, it's talking about God's thoughts of you. It's very interpersonal. It's not the emanation of God. It's what God thinks of you. It's, it's what his thoughts are when he conceives of man, when he conceives of woman, when he, when he conceives of us. That's the sense for glory. And it is captured in the covenants he makes with us. God in clarifying his thoughts and attitudes, when he clarifies it, he communicates that clarity in covenants. Covenants are contracts or treaties. And God clarifies his thoughts toward us 
by communicating covenants in which he stipulates what his commandments are and what his commitments are and what the consequences are for not obeying the commandments or the commitments. Um, In order to know God, in order to think about God correctly, I'm going to say this twice, in the beginning and at the end. In order to know God clearly, covenant clarity, I believe, is essential. Not nice, it's not always easy, but it's essential because, as it says, glory reflects God's covenant. And to understand glory, we have to understand the covenant God operates by. And there's two of them. The major covenants are the old covenant through Moses and the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated. You remember what Jesus said when it was the Last Supper? He said, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. And what happened when Jesus came is the new covenant came into being, and the old one was made obsolete. That's what ends up happening. Um, The old covenant, if we try to look at the difference, the old covenant is described as being burden-producing. And the new covenant is rest-producing. Let's look at a couple verses. It says in Hebrews, um, you've not come to a mountain that can be touched, and it's it's referring to Mount Sinai and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such, voice, to such a voice speaking words, that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. We got this image, if you've seen the movies, of what it was like to be at Mount Sinai. And it's not always what it was depicted. It was terrifying. Moses was trembling with fear. Uh, it's a scene reminiscent of the Wizard of Oz, you know, when, when, they're, when they're coming toward the wizard, I am the great and powerful Oz, and you know, the scarecrow wizard. You know. that's, that's the sense, that's what it was, that's what it was like. Uh, those who approached were quaking with fear. The sense for what it was like to approach God, it was not nice, it was terrifying. The application of it, Jesus in his time said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move. The load placed by the old covenant, again, you remember what kabod means? Heavy. It's heavy. It's burdensome. And that's what Jesus pointed out. The problem is not that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law misrepresented the weight of the old covenant demands. It's heavy. The problem was that they didn't lift a finger to help people manage them. It was not that they misrepresented the weight of the covenant, because it's heavy. Come on. It's that they didn't help people to manage the load. Uh, The burden placed by the old covenant is heavy. The burden placed by the new is very different. Here's what Jesus indicated. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How can you tell if you're getting to know God better? Over the years, you might not be able to tell from week to week. What Jesus says is, as we are understanding who God really is, as reflected in the new covenant, not the old, what we'll find is that little by little, approaching God should be accompanied less by burden and more by rest. The weight of obligation starts to feel a little bit lighter and a little bit lighter. It doesn't mean that there are none, but it doesn't feel crushing. It doesn't feel overwhelming. That's how you can tell if you're coming closer to him. There is a gentleness with which Jesus reflects God that is not always reflected in those who speak for God. Those who speak for God and do so accurately will speak gently because that's how Jesus spoke. It's not just what he says, but how he says it. How do you know if you're on the right path? That will be the way it is. Um, glory reflects God's covenant. Glory also determines how we relate to God. Um, there's two different experiences that we can have with God. One is that we sense that we are bound to have to do all the right things in order to make God happy. It's almost like he is the master and we are the slaves. That's one way to relate to him. The other way to relate to him is that we are his sons and daughters, and he is our father. Biblically, what it seems to suggest is there's a spirit of slavery that comes with believing that we are under the jurisdiction of the old covenant. That's what it's going to create. If you look towards God and imagine that he is putting down commandments, that if you keep them, you'll be blessed. If you don't keep them, you'll be cursed. What that will cause, whether we're aware of it or not, we will relate to God the way a slave relates to a master. And it will cause us to become, what do you imagine? The experience of someone, and we all know because to a degree we still harbor some of these thoughts about God because there's not a lot of covenant clarity in churches. And I'm not saying this is better, but I think it's important. So if you relate to God the way a slave relates to a master, what words will characterize your relationship with God? I'll give you a few. Burdensome. Fearful. In the first century, a slave had to stay in line or they were punished. And a slave had no recourse. A master could treat a slave however they wanted to treat him and be as harsh as they wanted to do. It was, it was frightening to be a slave. Um, and that's what comes with relating to God as a slave to a master. The difference between relating to God as a son or daughter, um, well, what it says, you do not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. 
Does that say what I think it says? Does God want you to be afraid of him? What do you think? doesn't. The Bible talks about fear, fearing God, but fear does not mean terrified. It does not mean a don't beat me. It's, that's not the word. It's the word. It's respect. God doesn't want us to be afraid of him. That's what it seems to indicate here. He hasn't, did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. Why would he use the word again? Paul is speaking to Jewish Christians here, I believe, who had been under the old covenant and they then learned through Christ and the new covenant, they were under a new one. And you know what ended up happening? Fear ended up being replaced by trust. What they were being kind of pulled back under, and that's what Paul's saying, you were under the old covenant once and it created fear. Don't go back there. Don't go back there. That's what he's saying. And you receive the spirit of sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. We've said this. this. There's two words that a Hebrew child would say. Uh, one is Emma. Emma. Your mothers. Remember the first time you heard that from your kids? Mama. Mama. That's, that's the Hebrew word for mama. Emma. And the Hebrew word for daddy, Abba. Abba. And naturally, uh, how many kids say Emma first and Abba first? Anyway, let's not get into that. That's Father's Day and Mother's Day, and let's, let's, let's not mess with that. Um, spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. What it says here is that if you're plugging into the Spirit of God, what he's going to do, he's going to develop a an ability in you to relate to God as Abba, Abba. Very familiar, not frightened, not frightened, but trusting. Um, Under all covenant commandments, the children of Israel related to God the way a slave relates to a master. The base motivation was fear. A slave obeyed because he or she was afraid not to. Under new covenant commandments, children of God relate to God the way a son or daughter relates to a father. The base motivation is trust. Glory reflects God's covenant. Glory determines how we relate to God. Glory changes those upon whom it shines. This might be the most important of the three points. I want you to listen to me. You have been created by God in such a way, I want you to listen to me. The thoughts you have about him, the sense for How does God think about me? What is the glory? Is it old covenant glory? Is he the master and I'm the slave? Is it new covenant glory? He's the father and I'm the child. These glories will directly impact the way you relate to God and they will will make or break spirituality. You say, no, they won't. But We have been created to be impacted by glory. Either a glory that causes us to be burdened and afraid, or a glory that causes us to move towards rest and to trust. The most important thing we can do, I I agree, and it doesn't happen fast, is to develop covenant clarity. To the degree your thoughts about God become clearer, 
You understand? He's no longer relating to me this way. He's relating to me this way. That clarity will change you. Not because you'll make it change you. It's what we were created. It's how we were created. We will be changed to the degree we understand the covenant God is operating by. Um, and the difference is every glory changes. This glory can change you. If, if somebody's holding punishment over your head, can that produce change? Somebody, somebody's going to punish you if you don't do something. Is that going to promote change? Are you going to change what you do? Absolutely. Are you going to change the way you think inside? Not necessarily. And God does, is God's not interested in just changing what we do and how we behave, because that's not what he judges. God doesn't judge what we do. He judges the way we think about him. Because ultimately, that's smart, isn't it? That's smart, because our thoughts about someone, think about your mother. Your thoughts about your mother influence your attitudes towards your mother, influence your actions towards your mother. Would you agree? Thoughts? Mom. Attitude? She hasn't been perfect, but she's always been there for me. Actions? I want to honor her on Mother's Day. The most important thing about thoughts, and it's the same thing with God. How we think about God is the most important thing. Um, and there is change that comes from fear-based, and there's change that comes from, um, well, what it says. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. It's talking about the glory of the Old Covenant, and what we're, saying, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but here's what happened. When Moses went up on the mountain, you remember that? He went up on the mountain and he came down, his face was shiny. He didn't even know it. What, it, what Paul ends up saying, that Moses put a veil over his face, did kind of did this. And he might have thought that he was protecting people's eyes. You know, if he came down and he, and he looked like a zillion watt bulb and, and people were going, holy smokes, Moses, give me a break, will you? And he goes, okay, let me do this. And so what Paul says, this is not the reason why he did it, or not the only reason. See, you know what happened when Moses came down from the mountain? And he stood before the people. His face was shiny. And it was. And you know what happened as time went on? Hey, is it just me? Am I getting cataracts in my eyes? Or is the shininess becoming, is he becoming dimmer? He's becoming dimmer. Did you see he's becoming dimmer? Oh, and now I can't see if he's becoming dimmer or not. What, and so the reason why Paul makes that illustration, the fact is, old covenant glory was never meant to last. It was meant to be shiny and then to dissipate. And why, why am I even messing with this? Because it's the same thing for change created by a fear-based, it changes your behavior for a little while. Change created by fear is skin deep and short-lived. Change created by the new covenant when it's not forced is heart deep. 
It changes your thoughts and long live. If your thoughts change about God, it will change your attitudes. And if it changes your attitudes, it will change your actions and the change will last. And that's the sense, that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Moses' glory was fading. Last verse, it says, but whenever anyone turns, turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's another word that describes covenant clarity will promote freedom. It will feel less like slavery, more like freedom. Um, and we who with unveiled face all reflect the Lord's glory of being transformed into his likeness, where with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Here's what I think it's saying. I think all of us have a default setting. We kind of relate to God as kabod. I think that's the way we grow up. And it's not because church is good or bad. It's kind of the way it is. And what happens as we learn about covenants, a transformation occurs. We move from glory to glory. We change from glory to glory. And I think what the sense is for the text, we start with kabod and we move towards, what's the Greek word? Remember? Doxa. From burden producing to rest producing. From spirit of slavery to spirit of sonship. From skin deep, short term change to heart deep, long term change. It doesn't happen all of a sudden, it happens gradually. You can't force this kind of change. Uh, New covenant influence is rest-producing, gentle, and cannot be driven by fear. Here's what we've done. We've looked at three things about glory. Glory reflects God's covenant. In order to understand glory, you have to understand covenant. Secondly, glory determines how we relate to God, and it will determine how you relate to God, how we relate to God. And glory changes those upon whom it shines. Um, Glory, Old Testament glory is burden producing. It's associated by a spirit of slavery and it's skin deep, short term change. New covenant glory is rest producing. There's a spirit of sonship, heart deep, long term change. A couple words in closing. You know what we end up doing in church? And it's a problem. We end up focusing so heavily on behaviors that we never get to beliefs. If you focus on behaviors, where do you think your focus is going to be? Is it going to be an old covenant focus or a new covenant focus? If we focus on behavior, here's where it's going to focus. And if we focus here, the very behaviors we're, we're trying to encourage can't happen here. That's why one of my my Encouragement for you, as much as you can, develop covenant clarity because what you're going to find as your beliefs change, your behaviors will change, you'll be transformed, and you won't even know it. Somebody will say to you, you know what? You don't seem to be as, you seem to be more restful. And you'll say, I wasn't even aware of it. Because here's the deal, when your gaze and glance shifts, when you when your gaze shifts from focusing on behaviors, which is going to end up here, 
to focusing on beliefs, then you, well, that's the way it works, isn't it? Are you going to change by gazing at yourself? You know what glory tells us? No. We're going to change as we gaze at him. And when we gaze at him, we've got to understand what him we're gazing at. We're not gazing at the God from Mount Sinai. God wasn't fully revealed. You know what God fully revealed himself? We have to look at a different mountain. Oh, Calvary. That's where God revealed himself. And as we understand what that means, as we gaze at it and glance at our behavior, gaze at his glory, glance at our behavior, little by little, we will be transformed by that glory. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, you don't frighten us into change. You father us into change. That's the way it has to be. We, we do things we don't want to do. We think things we don't want to think. We have things we don't want to have. And we, we, we feel things we don't want to feel. And it's easy for us to gaze at those things and try to change them by the force of will. But that's not how deep change occurs. Deep change occurs by understanding that although we're not who we want to be, as we focus on who you are and love and grace, love and grace will make the deep changes that our force of will cannot. Will you help us to, little by little, develop covenant clarity so that that will help us to see the glory that will change our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Mother's Day, moms. Hope you have a great rest of the day.